few days ago, my wife and I had some friends over for dinner, and they had asked me or asked us if we had seen the YouTube clip of Jimmy Fallon and uh, a, a comedian named Dana Carvey. Did you all know Dana Carvey or that name? He was, yeah, he's super funny. He was really popular back when I was back when I was a kid. Uh, but when I was in college, he made some great movies. And um, and anyway, uh, it, so Dana Carvey was on the Jimmy Fallon show. And Dana Carvey is a master impersonator. And Jimmy Fallon got him to do his best impersonation of Donald Trump, which is just wonderful. And um, <laughs> before he did started impersonating him, Dana Carvey said this, and this is not a political soapbox at all. Donald Trump is just fun to talk about because he's so flamboyant in his personality and everything he says is borderline ridiculous. And um, So he said this. He said, you know, I never want to live in a world where Donald Trump is, is president, but I never want to live in a world where Donald Trump is not running for president. And um, I thought that was funny because, uh, you know, that's true. Like, Trump says so many things that people pick up on, and, and talk show hosts and comedians and SNL just run, and, I mean, they have a field day with this stuff, mostly for good reason. And um, But Trump, the other day, I think it was Monday, I was driving home from, from work and uh, – because I'm old, I guess I listen to talk radio, NPR, and um, they had a soundbite of Donald Trump speaking at an event. And um, he said this, and it's, it's something he said in numerous settings, I'm sure, but, but he said, you know, he said, it's just, it's just been a long time since America has won. It's been a long time since we've won at something. We used to win all the time. We used to win at war. But ISIS is dominating right now. We used to win at trade deals, but we're being pillaged by the Chinese. We used to win on immigration, but we're letting all these people in. And, you know, and he went on and on about all these ways that America used to win. And the, paint, the picture he was painting is, but you know, now all we do is we lose. And look, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump or the politi- political scene at all, that sentiment is brilliant. Talking like that is so smart because what it does is it connects universally with everyone. Everybody wants to win. We want to be on the winning team. We want our company to do well. We want our family to be successful. We want to win. Nobody wants to lose. And Trump is holding forth this very simple math. If you you elect me president, we will win again. Implication, if you don't, you will continue losing. Super powerful. In this passage tonight, once again, we see people who needed to win. Last week we saw, and we've seen now for weeks, and it's this cycle that keeps happening in Judges, that God's people continue to find themselves losing kind of at life. They are abandoning God, and they're going after all these other false gods that were in the land. They're worshiping essentially everything but God. And then God would raise up a deliverer who who kind of saves them militarily and seemingly spiritually for a little while and restores order amidst the chaos. But they're back in the chaos right here in this story. And they need a win. They need someone to step in and do it. And we see that in this passage, actually, and we'll read it in just a sec, that they had been, currently, they had been oppressed by Jabin, the king of Canaan, for 20 years. They had been losing for 20 years. And it says in verse 3, if you want to go ahead and open up and look right there, it says that they had been cruelly oppressed. 
In Hebrew, that, that word, cruelly oppressed, it literally says they have been squeezed. That's the kind of oppression. It's, it's, they are at their ends. What does that mean? Well, Sisera, who was uh, Jabin's military commander, and again, we'll read this in just a second. I'm going to give you a preview of it, though. Sisera was an evil man. We're not going to read chapter 5. We're going to read chapter 4. But chapter 5 is Deborah and Barak. It is their kind of poetic recounting what we are going to read in chapter 4 about this victory that the Lord gives them. And what they say about Sisera, who is this military king, is that he, in verses 28 through 30 of chapter 5, that he is enslaving and raping young girls. The oppression for Israel at this time is real, and it is bad. It's awful. They are being squeezed down to the bones of their existence. So the question is, who is going to step in and give them a win? Who's going to come and fight for them? Who's going to bring them victory? It's not Donald Trump. There's better news than that. Let's read here from chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidith, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaanim, which is near Kedesh. <laughs> it ain't easy, y'all. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up from Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot, and Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim, and the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. 
But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. This is the reading of God's word. Tonight, we're going to see an account of the Lord God winning. And again, his winning ways aren't necessarily how we would have drawn it up. They're not necessarily through the people that we might suspect. But what we learn again tonight is the Lord is faithfully pursuing, loving, and fighting for his people because he can't stop loving them. He can't stop. So he comes and he fights for them again tonight. The way we're going to look at this is kind of like uh, how I'm kind of in a sports mood right now, Super Bowl coming. Uh, We're going to talk about this in the way that a sports writer recaps uh, a game. Uh, And part of the recapping is talking about the box score. It's talking about who played and kind of the X's and O's of, you know, how many innings they played or how many minutes they played, if they scored points or got rebounds or had RBIs or, or whatever it is for some of you are like, uh, I don't know what that means. That's okay. Um, so there's the box score. Then there's kind of um, the highlights. What kind of made the, the highlight real? And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to first start here with the recap. Okay, the recap. The first thing we see is the box score then. Who was playing? What did they do? I'm just going to talk about the players and then briefly talk about what they did. First right here, first player is Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, Jabin... Um, he ruled in this place called Hazor. Now, again, if, if you're just reading through this, you're going to blow right past that. I get it. Um, Hazor was an important town. Last week we read that Ehud, the, uh, Eglon, the king of Moab, recaptured Jericho. And that was a big deal if you were an Israelite because Jericho was this big fortified city that God had given you victory over. And so they, the people of Israel had gone in and conquered Jericho, and that was a huge victory. And you ever read last week that Eglon, the Moabites, had reconquered it, and so that would have been very depressing and bad news. Hazor is kind of the same way. It's a, it's a big city that was in a different part of the land of Canaan, and they had conquered it. And now it says this guy, Jabin, has reconquered it. He's living there. So this would have been bad news, bad news. And they, he was ruling from there and was oppressing them. The second player in this story, in the box score, is Deborah. Is Deborah. Now, this may be interesting to you, because for the first time in the book of Judges, 
One of the prominent figures is a woman. Is a woman. And, and so Deborah, it says of her that um, she is a prophetess, which means that she is, she is dictating and teaching God's word to the people. And that's really cool. And it says that she was really good at it. And people were coming to her and asking her her opinion and her wisdom. And she was kind of judging over different matters. Okay, now, it's not unprecedented for God to use women in his story of redemption throughout the Bible. There's a number of different instances. There's Esther. There's Ruth. There's Rahab. There's the Marys in the New Testament who attend to Jesus and follow him. It's not unprecedented as far as the Bible goes, but as far as the culture that this was all set in goes, this was hugely unprecedented. Women did not have places of power. They weren't looked to for wisdom and advice and, and all of these things. And so this is a big detail. This is, this is a big thing. But it's also worth noting that, that Deborah is also the first judge who isn't the one that leads the people out into military victory. She's not the leader of the army. And in fact, she calls up Barak to go lead them out. We're going to talk about him in a second. But nonetheless, she is a leader. She's a prophetess. She speaks God's words. Okay, I need to pause here for just a second and say this. In some of your minds, you're thinking, man, yeah, like, Women in the church, women have these really important roles here. So, like, why don't I always see that in the church today? What's up with that? Why are women not pastors like men are pastors in some churches? Y'all, that is such a good question. And that's such an important question. Um, And I would be happy to talk about that with you. As with uh, Emily, I'm I'm quite sure of it. And it's it's really important. And I just want to say, I'm not going to go into depth with that right now. I have, uh, right over here somewhere, um, right up here, I've made a copy of a short, um, it's two pages from a commentary that I've been studying. If you want to read about this kind of in very brief format, just come grab one of those afterward. And if, and if I run out, text me, it's on the back of the, the handout. It's a, it's a great topic. It's not the focal point of this passage, and so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But if you want to know about that, I just want to mention that. So Barak, the next player in this story, Deborah has Barak come and lead the people out into um, the victory, the military victory. And I'm going to keep pushing him off. We're going to get to him. Sisera. I told you about Sisera. He's, he's evil. He's the commander of this Canaanite army. And he, we first see him in, in verse 2 right there. He's Jabin's military commander. And um, also an important note about Sisera, and we know it's important because it keeps showing up in these details, that he has 900 chariots of iron. That's important because um, as we look at this, we are transitioning historically from the Stone Age to the Iron Age. And this is kind of like, this is a big deal. If you have iron chariots and your opponent doesn't, you're going to dominate him. This would be the equivalent of Justin Bieber and Adele going into a singing contest, right? The Beebs is going to destroy her. <laughs> Not so. But iron chariots will beat non-iron chariots, even, t- even against 10,000 men every single time. It's a foregone conclusion. It would have been a slaughter. Next person we see is Haber. 
Haber, seemingly just a random dude here in verse 11. More on him in a second. And then Jael, who's Haber's wife, verse 17. What do we know about her? Well, she's hospitable. Sisera is fleeing from the battlefield. And here's Jael hanging out at the tent, welcomes Sisera in and says, Hey, come on in here. Like, go lay down. And he says, I'm thirsty. Give me some water. And she says, I'll I'll give you milk and probably cookies instead. And um, so she takes care of him. She puts a blanket on him and, and goes to stand guard at the tent for him. And then she drives a peg through his temple. She freaking murders this dude in her tent. I'm not making this stuff up. So that's the box score. That's the X's and O's. That's who's in this story. Another part of the recap then is the small details. If you're much of a sports fan uh, or kind of know how this stuff works, there's usually little things that happen in a game that, that begin to kind of produce tension. And so whether it's an injury to a star player or maybe uh, the, the leading scorer gets 3,000 basketball in the first half, so he's forced to sit out more than the coach would want him to, or some of these things, which are little p- bits that come along the way that get to be a bigger deal down the road. In my own life, um, when I was in college, I... Some of you heard me tell this a lot of times. Um, I lived, I lived to win awards, to get scholarships, to be on the honor rolls, to get president of uh, positions in different organizations. I just lived essentially to build my resume. It's what fed me. And uh, my senior year, I was interviewing for what essentially was top 10 senior at OU, and I had, I'm not bragging, I promise. I had one top 10 freshman, sophomore, and junior, and I had done so many things that it kind of was like a foregone conclusion that I was going to get this. I knew all the interviewing panel. I was just prime. I was set up to get this. And I went to that interview, and they asked me a lot of questions, and it was going great, and they asked me this question. They said, if you could have lunch with anyone on campus... Who would it be and where? And you know how interviews go. You're wanting to say something that stands out, that's memorable, and it's not just like what everyone else said. And, but I thought that was a weird question. I was like, anyone on campus? Man, mm, roommates, pretty girl, like football. Pl- I, and it came to me. I was like, oh, this is going to be good. I, I said, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, when I walk out of my Spanish class, there's a girl who, um, who's in a wheelchair, and, uh, you know, I don't know her. I've never met her. I've never talked to her. But I do know this much, that her experience of college is just way different than mine. She sees everything from a different vantage point. She experiences events differently. She has different um, perspective physically, yes, but also just kind of in the whole sphere of what living a life um, uh, with a special need does. You know, and they're looking at me like I have just fallen off the moon, like kind of glazed over, like, what are you talking about? And I, so I immediately start to get nervous and I walk out, I finish the interview and I go and find my roommate who's waiting outside the door and also is interviewing for this. And I said, Hey, what'd you say on that one question? That was kind of weird. He was like, Oh yeah. I said, I was, I would meet with Gandhi and we'd like go over to this fountain. I was like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Gandhi doesn't live on this campus. (laughs) He's like, what are you talking about? I said, they said if you could have lunch with anyone on campus. He said, no. They said if you could have lunch with anyone on campus, who would it be and where? 
Friends, let me tell you something. So I didn't get this award. And I was crushed. I really do mean like I was crushed. Why? I was crushed because this stuff, winning this stuff, was what fueled me. It was, I might say in these words, it was my functional God that I looked to to give me life. In the small detail of me missing the intonation in a word was what the Lord used to uncover this heart issue of mine and to bring me back to himself. Literally, it was the stress that was put on a word. He's in the details And he's in the details in this passage. The first place we see that is in verse, excuse me, is in verse 7. Look down right there. It says, the Lord, uh, the Lord says that he will draw Sisera and his 900 chariots to meet Israel by the river Kishon. And this is so significant. This is a small detail, but this is so significant because an archaeologist will confirm this. I had a seminary professor who was an archaeologist. He said, this is, It's a big deal because the river Kishon isn't really a river in the sense that we think. It's not just like moving high volumes of water all day, every day. It's it's what is more appropriately called a wadi. Any of y'all know what a wadi is? Have you ever been to Africa? It's a it's an Arabic word which which means like a dry creek bed that most days of the year is just dry. It's it's lowered a little bit, it's a depression. But it's dry. But when the rains come, it quickly floods because the ground is so hard. It just like and dumps in there and floods its banks and it becomes a a nightmare. You can't cross it. And here we go. The Lord draws out Sisera with all of his big bad chariots and he brings them to the river Kishon. Now here comes Barak who's terrified with just his people. He knows he's about to get slaughtered. Why is this a big deal? Again, we're not going to read it, but in chapter 5, it says this, verse 4. And they're celebrating. It's a, it's a song they've written. And it says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched down from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. What they're saying in our terms is this. The skies opened up and they poured down rain. And friends, when you have a chariot and it gets muddy and the river floods that you're camped out next to, your military advantage just got decimated. God is in the details. And he's in another detail. Go down to verse 11. I mentioned this random dude, Haber, that shows up and all it says is, yeah, he picked up his tent and he moved this other place. Well, um, Haber moved and grabbed his wife, Jael, and whoever else, and they moved their tent to this other place. And that other place just so happens, with air quotes, just so happens to be the place where Sisera, after his chariots got bogged down, he's losing this war, where Sisera flees to in the midst of this battle. And we all know there's a story. Jael meets him there, meets him there and puts a freaking tent peg through his head. It's not pretty. The Bible is not like G-rated in terms of how God is taking care of his people. It's not. But that's a small detail that matters a lot. He put the right people in the right places at the right time to bring a victory for his people. So let me ask you this. 
How is God at work in the details of your own life? The small details, the things that maybe you've written off as insignificant. Yes, yes, God works in big, huge ways, life-changing ways at times. But can you turn and look back over the course of your life, not just through a historical lens of saying, well, this happened, this happened, this kind of recounting things. Can you look back over your life and see through a theological lens, through a lens that says, you know, I wonder if God did that because of this. I wonder if he brought that person into my life to show me this about myself. I wonder if, if that breakup actually wasn't the breaking point of my life. Maybe God was using that breakup to wake me up. Maybe that, that moment or maybe that time that felt like such a crushing burden in the moment, maybe that was God's alarm clock for my soul. Why does God have you at TU? What's he doing in the details? Why does he have you at RUF tonight? Why does he have you surrounded with the people that he has surrounded you with? What is he doing in the details? He is at work. I promise you that. Could you pause to take a look at that stuff? God loves to work in the seemingly meaningless details. A final part of this recap comes in what I call the that you knew it was over when blank. So in a game, this might be the point where they're just, the team wasn't going to be able to come back. They scored the touchdown, they put it out of reach, they ran the clock down. It just wasn't going to happen. Well, there's one of these moments in this story, and interestingly, it actually comes before the battle even begins. Look in verse 14. Here it is. And Deborah turns to Barak and says, Up! For this day is the day, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? Friends, this is the whole deal. God wins. He wins. God wins. I don't know who the hero to this story is, honestly, at a, at a man human level. Is it Deborah and her all of her wisdom? Maybe, I don't know, is it Barak and his, his courage to go out and battle Sisera? Maybe is it Jael and her tent-pegging skills? I, dang, I don't know. What I do know is that God wins. And we see that so clearly in verse 15 because it says, The Lord routed Sisera. The Lord gets credit for this victory. It is the Lord who is in the details. And, and the implications of that is if, if you're with Him... You win. If you are with God, then you win. That's the story. It's like, uh, hey, hey, Barack, look, man, I know, I know it's scary. I know Sisera has 900 chariots of iron. But Barack, let me tell you this, Deborah's saying, the very one who created the world, who invented iron, who put the idea of a chariot in somebody's mind, the very one who did that, he's on your side. You can go out and fight whatever's coming because the Lord fights before you. And that's awesome in this story. And I want to tell you, it's still awesome today. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about this. Wyatt read it. I'm going to read it again from Romans 8. 
What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, look, God wins. If you're in Christ, you win. You will have everything your hearts have ever dreamed of and longed for. He goes on, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us. Do you know that if you're in Christ, he's praying for you right now? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Some of you have in your life been through some real tribulations. Unspeakable things have happened to you or your family. How about distress? What about distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, shame, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, Jesus, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Man. So shall any of those things separate us from the love of God, Paul says in 37? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? The Lord wins. And if you are in Christ, you win. Regardless of how much you continue to give in to sin. Friends, if you are in Christ, that does not define you. That is not the final score on your life. If you are in Christ, you win. If you die, if you are in Christ, you will yet live. The highlights. What are the highlights? There's a bunch of them. We're just going to look at Barak for just a second. Barak is a a single man highlight reel in this passage because right there when he's staring down these 900 chariots, Deborah comes to him and says, Barak, you've got to go do battle. He says, okay. Second half of verse 14 says, So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men. How does he muster the faith to to descend that mountain? He has faith. He believes what Deborah told him. Deborah said, the Lord is going to fight for you. And Barak said, okay. So what is faith? What does faith look like for him? What does it look like for you? Three things. One, faith listens to God at every stage of life and every circumstance. Barak trusted Deborah. There weren't a lot of women speaking on God's behalf in those days. It would have been hard to trust her, and he trusted her. He believed her. He listened to the people that God was putting in his life to tell him true things. Friends, are you listening to the people God is putting in your life? Are you listening to God as he speaks through his word? Or are you hearing them and continuing to do whatever you want? That's a big difference. The second thing that faith does is faith shows courage in the face of humanly overwhelming odds. 900 chariots. And yet Barak steps down onto the battlefield. Unbelievable courage. What is God asking you to do? How is he asking you to step out in courageous faith? Maybe it's to break up with somebody you don't need to be dating. Maybe it's to trust him 
with that relationship down the hall, which is so hard. Maybe it's you're trusting Him to, to heal a relationship that's been broken. Maybe you're trusting Him for the money to pay for this semester because your father-in-law spent it all. What is it? What's God asking you to step out in faith and do courageously? Thirdly, faith is humble and not honor-seeking. Barack knows he's not going to get the glory. Deborah tells him as much. She says, look, there's a woman who's ultimately going to get the victory here today. I'm talking about Jael, Jael. Um, so are you okay with not getting the glory? Are you okay with, with not being the one standing on the podium at the end? Are you okay to be used by God so that someone else may be victorious, may receive glory and laud and praise? Are you okay with that? Because God will happily use you toward that end. Faith is not self-seeking. It's not seeking its own glory and honor. It seeks to elevate others. That sounds, man, that sounds strange. It sounds like so strange to our culture, but so much like someone else in the Bible. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. He didn't consider the podium. He gave it up. He didn't hold on to his righteousness. He poured, he poured it out to us and he took our sin. He didn't hold on to all the privileges that he deserved as being part of the Godhead. He invites you to receive those privileges. He's humble. He didn't hold on to his glory. Faith is humble. Let me close with this story. I don't know how many of you guys are NHL fans. Um, I'm really not, but there's just an amazing story that came out over this last week, kind of unfolded. John Scott is an NHL player's name. Uh, John Scott is kind of a career, what, what sports people call a journeyman, meaning he just kind of journeyed from team to team, never was a great player. In 11 seasons, he scored 11 goals, which is basically negligible. He's kind of a nobody in the NHL, which is still kind of a somebody. Um, but that's who he is, right? Well, the NHL did a really interesting thing this year for their all-star game. They changed up the format, and they opened up all of the uh, – all of the balloting in terms of who got to go to the, to the All-Star game, they, they opened it up completely to fans. And so, I mean, 100%. And so what happened last week and, and, and over the last few weeks is that the fans started to kind of, as a joke, vote for John Scott to go to the NHL All-Star game. And he, like, basically hasn't played this year, nor much of his career. And, and he leads and actually gets the most votes of anybody to be in the All-Star game. And the NHL came in and tried to, like, backdoor manipulate the situation and trade him to another team so he couldn't go to the All-Star game. I'm not kidding. This is real. And fans went berserk and demanded that he go to the All-Star game. So the NHL caved, took him to the All-Star game. At the All-Star game, he has this amazing game, scores two goals, like plays out of his mind. And so when it comes time for MVP voting... The NHL doesn't even put him on the ballot during the game. And don't you love the Internet? The Internet goes crazy. And, like, social media is blowing up. And people are writing in, like, no, we want John Scott. And so there's this whole side campaign. And the NHL gives him the MVP. And as John Scott stood there at the end of this game, the commissioner of the NHL, the very guy who sought to undermine him, hands him a million-dollar check and the keys to a new car. 
Not kidding. Friends, if you're in Christ, you have been handed a million-dollar check and keys to the best future you can ever imagine. You don't deserve it. Of course you don't. But Jesus is so pleased to bring you onto his team and to win for you. He takes care of everything you might fear at the deepest level of your heart. And he says, hey, you're with me. And if you're with him, you win. Amen. Let's close.